If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 12, I'd like to read beginning at the first verse. Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two uh, doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water but shall rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left until the morning you shall burn with fire. Last Sunday we began to look at some of the main uh, teachings of the symbolism here of the Passover, which are, are really important to us. This is certainly one of the strongest links to tie the Old Testament and the New Testament together, this symbolism of the Passover. Because we know from passages, one of which we'll read later this morning, that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. The, the blood of the Passover lamb was shed for the protection of the Israelites against the death that was being brought by judgment from God upon the land of Egypt. And uh, that blood, of course, symbolized the blood that would later be shed by Christ, which truly would provide atonement. The blood of the lamb that was sacrificed that day, and, and the lamb, likewise, that would be slain at Yom Kippur, that blood did not actually atone for sin. It was merely symbolic of the atonement that would come through the death of Messiah. Now you'll notice, and I pointed this out last time, that the Passover lamb was selected ahead of time. And so the scripture tells us that Messiah was chosen from before the foundation of the world. We're told that the Passover lamb was to be without blemish. So Christ, we're told, was without sin. The death of the Passover lamb was substitutionary for the firstborn amongst Israel and Messiah's death is substitutionary for ours. The roasting of the lamb, the whole lamb, you'll notice, the head, the tail, the, the legs, the entrails, the whole lamb is to be roasted. And this is, of course, the symbolic of the fire of judgment. As Christ hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore the whole sin of the world and, and God's judgment fell on that sin at that moment, as is symbolized by the burning of the whole lamb. It's interesting, I think, also to note that none of the bones of the Passover lamb were, was to be broken. 
And so it was, we're told, that none of Christ's bones were broken. Uh, he died sooner than the two thieves on the cross, one on each side of him, whose bones were broken to facilitate their quicker death. But he was already dead, so there didn't need to be any of his bones broken. And so he remained intact physically as far as his bones were concerned. Then the scripture tells us in this passage that they were to eat bitter herbs as part of the Passover meal. And I think that bi those bitter herbs symbolized, first of all, the bitterness of 400 years of dwelling in a pagan and alien land. 400 years, many of which were spent in slavery. That was a bitter, bitter time for this nation. And then also the bitterness of the, of the necessity of slaying this pet lamb or goat. This one that was kept in the household and, and close to the family for the four days between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan when it would be slain. So that there would be a sense of loss when that lamb was slain. And then lastly, of course, the most important sense of bitterness comes with the necessity of the death of the Messiah. I'd like to read a verse from the book of Zechariah. <coughs> 12th chapter, the 10th verse, which talks a little bit about this bitterness relative to the death of Messiah. Zechariah 12:10, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The bitterness, especially that Israel will one day experience when finally they realize that Jesus Christ was truly their Messiah. Generally through scripture you discover that leaven is symbolic of sin. By requiring them to eat only unleavened bread. In this meal, this Passover meal, God was emphasizing the importance of what we today call sanctification. Setting one apart to God from sin. Separation from sin on the part of God's person. The, the Hebrew word here for leaven means that which is sour or bitter. And you can see the direct parallel. Sin is a very sour, bitter experience. It may seem for the moment joyous, as the scripture says, but later it, it reaps destruction and decay and rottenness and pain and death. Sin is bitter and sour in the human soul. Sin, or that is, leaven, also spreads all through the dough. And we'll be talking a little bit more about this in a moment. But you and I well know, I'm sure, that sin spreads quickly through our lives if we allow it to have residence there. And it spreads through culture very, very quickly as it has penetrated our culture, it seems, to the very deepest corner today. I'd like to read a, a, a important statement relative to this that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it kind of ties it all together uh, between Old and New Testament relative to this subject. 1 Corinthians 5 
verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Something that we see to be in rather small supply in modern America. Unfortunately, even within what is commonly called the church. In contrast to this, as you look through these passages, particularly this one we're looking at in Exodus, you discover that the Hebrew word for unleavened bread, probably a little more common to us, the term matzo, means sweetness without sourness. As leaven means sour and bitter, so the word for unleavened means sweetness with no sourness and with no bitterness. And what God is saying here is that he wants his people to know the sweetness of wholehearted commitment to him, for us, of the indwelling Christ, which, of course, once he fills us, we're, we're filled with the sinless person of Christ. We can know that ecstatic, exquisite sweetness that only comes through his presence. He who became the once and for all Passover lamb. And I think the closer we dwell with Christ in, in our commitment and, and in our desire to know him, the more sin impacts us when it comes into our lives. We don't just accept it like, oh, well, the next step along the road, oh, it had to happen, it was inevitable. But we begin to really sense, ah, you know, we're shaken by it. And, and we uh, are, are drawn immediately to confess it and to have God cleanse it because we don't like that sour bitterness that suddenly is in our lives, breaking our fellowship and the sweetness that comes through the presence of Christ. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we walk in that unleavened condition, that condition of sanctification, it doesn't mean, of course, sin never comes into our lives, but it means that we're quick to root it out through confession and seeking that constant cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ. I'd like to read, beginning at the 11th verse of the 12th chapter of Exodus, reading on in this account concerning the first Passover. Chapter 12, verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will ex execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when you see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you 
when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. The Israelites were commanded to eat in haste. We constantly tell our kids, don't we? Slow down, you know, enjoy your meal. But in this one instance, God says, eat in haste. Be ready to go out the door and into the Exodus. The name of the celebration is given to us specifically in the scripture. It says in verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. Not a human ordinance, but a God-instituted ordinance. And there is a big difference. We have had historically within the church many ordinances which were instituted by humans. But God has instituted those ordinances that are so critical in our lives, such as, of course, baptism and communion for the modern church. But for Israel, he gave the ordinance of Passover. And really, this becomes probably second only to circumcision, the um, primary ordinance that Israel was given in the early years. This in Scripture is the first use of the word Passover. And it is not the normal word to step or jump over something, to just pass over uh, something. It's not the normal Hebrew word. It's a special Hebrew word which appears to have two emphases, particularly in this passage. One of the emphases is to bypass the homes of the Hebrew people were to be marked with the blood placed on the doorpost with the hyssop and then on the lintel across the top. And that marking was so that the death angel would bypass the house and that no harm would come to the firstborn. We have to always remember as we read these things that God knows the heart. So the putting of the blood on the doorpost was not so that the angel wouldn't make a mistake, you know? flying over there, looking down, just kind of zapping, droop, oh, blood there, better not do it. I mean, we're talking about God. He knows all things. The blood was for the Israelites. It was so that they would relate to this touchstone. God gives us touchstones for our faith. Something that we can, can, and can see or, or handle or touch in some way or another to strengthen our faith. God does not just send us on the road to, to faith without anything concrete to believe in. This last week, Lois and I were over with our uh, son-in-law, Corey, and, and our daughter, Kelly, because they have next two, two doors down from them in the apartment they live, three Mormon missionaries have moved in. And those three Mormon missionaries wanted a time with Corey and Kelly. So they invited us over, and uh, Corey and Kelly did. And uh, so we met with them. And, you know, one of the things you discover rather quickly about when you're dealing with Mormons is there is no touchstone. As we talked with them, you know, I don't know if you've ever, this, this is maybe not a real good analogy, but it's kind of like, you know, you're poking with a sword or something, but you never hit anything solid. It's like poking a marshmallow or something. You, you try to deal with any issue. And there's nothing of substance there. It's, 
It's all feeling. They talk about how do you feel about this? How do you feel about it? What do you mean by feel? Well, you know, how do you feel about it? And, and, you know, we kept trying to come back to where is the foundation of your faith? Where is the scripture to support? Well, um, you know, it's how you feel about it. Do you feel like God is here? Do you feel like God is convincing you this is true? Not whether there's any substance to it. We have a historical book here. Tonight we'll be looking at the historical books. What does God care about history for? A lot of of students don't think history is very meaningful. You know, why do I have to take this? But, you know, God gives us histories. I mean, the history is is shot through this whole passage here. Do it again. Why? In remembrance. The whole point of history is to remember where we've been. Because if we know where we've been, we know where we're going. If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. And if we don't know that we were in a lost condition, we have no idea what it means to be saved going on to the kingdom. The Israelites had no sense of what it would mean to go through the wilderness to the promised land if they didn't know they were coming away from bondage in Egypt. And uh, later generations were going to have to be taught this. We're grounded not just in, in a faith in some kind of a nebulous thing, but we're grounded in a faith that's based on the concrete events of history. They really happened in human time and, and in space on this planet. And, and you, can, you can document it. Secondly, the Hebrew word here means to hover over. Not just to pass over, to fly by, but to hover. To hover over that shelter, uh, that, that place, and to defend the inhabitants. To defend the inhabitants against the judgment that was falling upon Egypt. The Hebrew word was very, very similar to an Egyptian word that is used, apparently adopted into the Hebrew language, which is used in this passage. And there are allusions to it in other passages, which I've listed there, I think, on the outline. Hebrews 20, 11, 28, in that famous triumph of, pa- of faith passage, We read in the 28th verse of Hebrews 11, By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. He defended them, protected them from the judgment that was to fall. In Isaiah chapter 31, we have even a more pointed statement. In Isaiah 31 verse 5, Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will hover over, protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Passing over, not in the sense of just a flyby, but of defending and protecting. And then also in that famous 91st Psalm, we have a statement similar to that. Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. He is our Passover Lord. He hovers over us to grant safety and protection. The importance of the Hebrews following God's instructions here through Moses 
explicitly to the very ultimate detail is clear in this passage that we've read in chapter 12 of Exodus because God's death angel was going to fly through the land and his goal was to take the lives of all of the firstborn where there was no blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. In so doing, the scripture clearly teaches us that God's purpose was to judge Egypt's gods. To judge the gods of Egypt. And he did this, first of all, by demonstrating to everybody clearly the impotence of the gods of Egypt. Could the gods of Egypt either singly or collectively stop that death angel? Could the magicians call upon their gods and stop the death angel? Absolutely not. Nothing could halt that death angel. The gods of Egypt were rendered totally impotent as the death angel flew over Egypt. And then secondly, even more clearly, the gods themselves were destroyed because the firstborn of Pharaoh would die. And who was the firstborn of Pharaoh? He was the son of God. He was the physical representation of Horus. He was the son of the sun god. The divine would die, as well as the, the bulls, the sacred bulls of Apis. They were going to die too, you know, the firstborn of these. And, and so it was a direct cut on the gods of Egypt. And, and God said there specifically that he came to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. All the Egyptians who were paying any attention should have been aware that either their gods were not gods, were just human inventions, and they were just believing in nothing, or else their gods were sure pretty puny in comparison to the God of Israel, because they could do nothing to halt the judgment of this alien God. This God I mean, I, I don't know if I can emphasize it enough. The God of slaves. The God of slaves. One of the reasons in the first century after the birth of Christ, that the church didn't take hold very strongly amongst the upper class of the Roman Empire was the fact that it took hold so strongly amongst the lower class. And the upper class looked down and said, well, if that's the religion of the lower class, it can't be anything to us. Because if it's meaningful to slaves, it can't mean anything to us who are the sophisticated upper class. We've got to have a more sophisticated religion and faith. So if you think about this, not only was it hard for Pharaoh, but it was hard for all the Egyptians. Because all of them had this attitude that the Hebrews in their midst were their slaves and they could kick them around anytime they wanted to. And it's their God that's doing this to us? Really hard from the, for them to make the, quote, paradigm shift as we use so often today. But God very, very specifically recorded, had Moses record there in the 12th verse of that passage, that his purpose in sending this judgment was that it would be a specific judgment against the gods of Egypt, for I am Yahweh, he said. I am the almighty, sovereign, self-existent, eternal God, who is God alone. And this is one way for them to find it out. 
It's the hard way, but they will find it out. And so God, by this act, put his imprimatur on the whole thing, the whole exodus, the whole ministry of Moses, sealed by the death angel's flight and the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt. The 13th verse there in Exodus 12, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The emphasis here is on the fact that the lamb's blood was on the door posts and the lintel. Why was it there? It was there because the children of Israel obeyed the word of the Lord through Moses. We cannot forget the act of obedience here. And why did they obey? Because they believed. God gave them the faith to believe, and through that faith they acted in obedience to the word of God. And he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, if they hadn't believed, they wouldn't have put the blood on the doorposts and they would have died for lack of faith. That blood symbolized atonement for the Hebrews. And the consequent, consequence of it was freedom from judgment. They were not judged because that blood symbolized atonement for them. And if we don't see the parallel to Christ here, we're, we're kind of blind, I think. His blood, the blood of Christ, has atoned for us in exactly the same way. Because his blood is the true atonement, not a symbol. It is the atonement for our sin. And that blood protects us from the judgment of God. And I don't know if that really sinks down into the depths of our soul, if, if daily we can, can grasp what that really means. I, I think most of us just get caught up in the humdrum of life and we're buzzing on through life here and, and it, you know, the depth of what God has done doesn't always hit us. The horribleness of hell, I don't think ever, really can be understood by us. In fact, of course, as you well know, there are many who have been so turned off by the horribleness of hell that they, they say there is no hell. They, they just eliminate it because then you don't have to worry about it, see? And I think that's really sad when that happens within the framework of, quote, the church, the mainline churches, at least in some cases. But, but for those for whom the blood is not efficacious because they have not believed and not done, acted in obedience, that's the judgment they face, and that judgment is far worse than simple death, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. It's eternal death, the second death, as we're told in the book of Revelation. It's appointed unto man once to die. That's the first death, and, and virtually all of us face that. But it's the second death we have to be concerned about, not the first death, because the second death is eternal separation from God and judgment in its ultimate expression. The sacrifice was of eternal significance. That's why God said to them, remember it, repeat it, do it again, annually, 
hold another Passover time in commemoration of this first event. They were to repeat the sacrifice, they were to repeat the meal, they were to repeat the story as it was written in the words of the Pentateuch every year so that they wouldn't forget why it was instituted. So they wouldn't forget that they were delivered by God through faith and obedience. And to teach the next generation, how would their children know? They hadn't been there to experience it, those that were not born yet, those that would be born in the wilderness, those that would be born after they were in the land of Canaan. How would they know the significance of it unless it was commemorated? And so God made it a perpetual commemoration in their uh, history. They were to, a annually to repeat the Passover. And that repetition would occur as far as significance is concerned until the great Passover, where the true Passover lamb would be slain. And then, of course, the repetition of, of at least the commemoration in our hearts would be hopefully on a daily basis as we give God thanks for the death of, of his son who, whose blood has protected us from judgment. Verse 15, chapter 12 of Exodus. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of, pardon me, of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat the unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native in the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread." So it wasn't a thing that they just did in a single meal. It was to be repeated for the entire following week from the 15th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan. They were not to eat anything but unleavened bread as far as bread was concerned. And what's interesting is that failure to comply would result in excommunication or possibly even death. Because sometimes in the Old Testament when it says cut off from Israel, it means cut off from this life. But certainly at least excommunication. Now, was this requirement because there was some special significance in the matzo itself? That if you eat the matzo, you are going to have something good happen to you? Well, we're all familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew 15, where he says, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, says, 
food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So obviously there was no property in the matzo itself. It was not converted to uh, some spiritual entity as some believe in the communion happens when the priest blesses it, it becomes the body and blood of Christ and, a, and, and the sacrifice is renewed. No, it was not in the bread itself, but it was the symbolism of the leaven that represented sin. People to go through their houses, look in every nook, nook and cranny uh, in their houses to root out any speck of leaven that could be found there. And what this was, was a represent, I mean, it's not like if there actually were a spore of leaven still left somewhere in the house that God's going to go, you know. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the symbolism of searching and looking and trying to break the old sin cycle. It's beyond the New Year's turning over of a new leaf. It's a rededication to God in the power of His Spirit and in the light of the atoning blood of the Lamb. The idea was to start afresh. The idea was to be reminded of the significance of sin. And I don't know if we can emphasize that too much because you and I are well aware of the fact that we live in a society which downplays sin to the point where, you know, very few people will call sin, sin. Well, but even if they call it sin, what is so what? It, you know, everybody does it, what's it matter? But, but to realize how horrible it is because sin separates us from God. And the worst thing possible is eternal separation from God. And the vast majority of people in this world have no concept of what that means or that it is even impending. In the Hebrew society, when a new household began, the wife would bring to the new household a little piece of dough with leaven in it from her parents' household. And that would be the starter that she would use now in her own household for preparing bread. And whenever it was time to make bread, she would whip up the dough and she would put this little lump that she brought from her parents' house into it and she would leave it in, mix it in and leave it there and it would rise and the leaven would penetrate through every corner of that new dough until it was risen to the point where it was to be baked. And then she would take out a little piece of that new dough and put it in a dark, moist place wherever you could find such a place in a dry land like Israel. And then she would bake the remaining bread. And that little piece that she kept out would be the starter for the next batch. And so on and on it would go. Where did she get the leaven? From her parents. Where did they get the leaven? From their parents. Can you see the symbolism of sin? In Adam, sin began. And that leaven has penetrated the human race. And it's little lump by little lump. As, as terrible as it is to think about, that little lump right over there who's only eight weeks old has been leavened by sin. She herself has not consciously committed any evil act, but, but she's part of the fallen human race and that leavening is there already. It's inbuilt in, in the human race. And so it's very, very important to break the hold of that leaven. And that's the symbolism that we see here. Sin like leaven 
infests, it spreads, it propagates itself. You don't have to do anything to nurture it. It just goes right on ahead. All by itself, it seems like. Obviously not by itself. It's got to be inside a person. But uh, the Hebrews who were involved in this Passover celebration were to remember their forsaking of the bondage which they had experienced in Egypt, and now they were to walk obediently with God on the path to the promised land, no matter how difficult that path might be. And as you read on in the story of the Exodus, that path was quite difficult. As you read not only in Exodus, but you read in Numbers, and you read in Deuteronomy the, the path by which they were taken into the land, uh, the promised land, was a difficult path. They would encounter many difficulties along the way. They'd be attacked by other people. They'd be attacked by wild creatures. They would suffer lack of food and lack of water. But God was always there with them. And if they believed him, the enemy would be defeated, the food would be provided, the water would be provided. And that's what God does for us. Our life may be difficult. We may walk through a desert area. We may have an enemy of some sort attack us. But God is faithful through it all. And as he kept Israel, so he will keep us. They were to clean out the old leaven, not so that they would be redeemed, but because they were already redeemed. There is no way... A sinner can clean up his life and get the sin out of his life. But as a saved person who has been redeemed, we can eliminate sin in God's strength. Not perfectly and totally, obviously, but we can deal with it anyway. We're not its slave anymore as they had been slaves in Egypt. In the 16th verse, we read that they were to gather together for worship on the Passover and on the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in so doing, the Scripture says they were to set aside all normal duties. All the regular things they did day by day were to be set aside except one, and that was the making of meals. Now, the reason that they were to do this was not, as we all know, because work was sinful. Work is not sinful. But they were to remove all distractions which might interfere upon their with their concentration upon God. You can't meditate on God if you're doing a bunch of other things. You know, if you're sitting in front of a computer trying to run all this information, you're probably not meditating specifically on God at that moment, unless what you're putting in the computer is scripture verses or something. Whatever might be your task, it's difficult to worship God with undivided attention if we have something else going. Now, the scripture clearly teaches us that we're to do all things as unto the Lord, which means that in our work we can worship Him and honor Him. And I try to make that clear to some of the students at the college, you know, that doing your work well is honoring God in serving Him. Some haven't quite gotten the point. <laughs> They think it's just a stumbling block along the way, <laughs> you know, something hurdle to, to clear, rather than an act of worship in and of itself. But in doing these other things, we can't give our full attention to, to God. 
And so the Israelites were to set aside all of their normal tasks so that they could meditate on God, so that they could hear God's voice through his word, so that they could praise him with, a, with undivided attention, and so they could fellowship at ease. You know, it's much more difficult to fellowship when you've got something on your mind that you've got to go do. You've all, you know, talked to people like that. You know they want to get away. <laughs> and they're just being polite to you. They've got something else on, your, on their mind. In fact, you, you say something to them and you can tell by their response they haven't got a clue what you really said because they're thinking about something else. Well, you know, you can't fellowship with each other or with God with that kind of a situation going on. So if all else is set aside, you can kind of focus on what's happening at that particular moment. God will later institute the Sabbath on a weekly basis so that this will happen every week, not just during the Passover celebration. Now, we're all aware, I think, that although God gave the Sabbath law as one of the commandments on Mount Sinai, that law was not transferred to us specifically in the New Testament. The New Testament does not repeat and say, thou shalt you know, worship God on the Sabbath only and keep it holy. But I think the implications are there. And I think we have taken probably too much liberty today in our society and in our church and have gone to the point where I think something important is lost because so many of us make Sunday a day not really terribly different from other days. We may go to church, but I don't think just going to church and Sunday school is all that's supposed to make the day different. I think there are other things that should be involved which make the day different. And then if we spend the whole afternoon at the mall or, or you know, doing our normal routine of work, I, I wonder if we really are experiencing all that God intended for us to experience as a result of the Lord's day. Well, I don't think there's any way that we can fail to, to understand the overwhelming importance of the Passover in its symbolism to us as we think in terms of the New Testament. We don't have time today to, to move further, but as we go through the last half of the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at God's insistence on the repetition of this ceremony for future generations. And then the launching of the Passover, I, I mean of the Exodus itself. The Passover was the moment that the Exodus was to begin. That's why they were told, have your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hands. Be ready to go out the door. Don't worry about the dishes. Just be ready to go. Seems like a good idea to many of us. <laughs> Alan? Where do they get the leaven to replace it if it's gone out of all the houses? Yeah, well, you put a little of it outside the house. Just get it out of the house. See, it's, it's, it's just symbolic. The leaven in and of itself is not evil or bad. Obviously, you eat it all the rest of the time. It's just a matter of getting it out of the house, the cleansing of the house. So it's put in an outside storage area where it can be kept for that week and survive and then brought back in. I, I think the emphasis upon the symbolism has to always be reminded because there are so many who take the actual physical thing 
and try to make that the law by which they live. Because it's easier to measure. Now, I can decide, oh, I'm being obedient because today I ate unleavened bread again. But it's a lot more difficult to think about the real meaning of that. And am I living a life that is in accordance with God's word? Am I shunning sin? That is difficult. But eating unleavened bread, not so difficult, actually. I don't know how many of you have eaten matzos, but they're pretty good, really. Especially with some jam on them or something. 